Welcome to Building Bridges, ACMCU's premier podcast where we discuss, debate, and examine contemporary issues facing Muslim-Christian relations in the United States and abroad. I'm your host, Andrew Condon, Digital Communications Manager for ACMCU. The Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding was founded in 1993 at Georgetown University with a mission to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West, building bridges of understanding between Islam and Christianity. In this program, we will speak to experts, faith leaders, authors, and influencers about how their work is shaping the discourse and fostering interfaith dialogue within their respective communities. Dr. Yasir Kadi holds a BSc in Chemical Engineering from the University of Houston, a BA in Hadith Studies, and an MA in Islamic Theology from the Islamic University of Medina, as well as a PhD in Islamic Studies from Yale University. Currently, Dr. Kadi is professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Rhodes College and the Dean of the Islamic Seminary of America. Dr. Yasir Kadi gave a talk this past April here at ACMCU entitled Rethinking Salafism, Shifting Trends and Changing Typologies Post-Arab Spring, and joins us for this episode of Building Bridges. Thank you so much for coming on this episode of Building Bridges. Now, Dr. Kadi, you just spoke here at ACMCU on the topic of Salafism and some of the history, especially in regards to the Arab Spring and what went on there. But before we get into that, I'd love for you to get a chance to talk about how now, for those who may not know your background, you were studying chemical engineering prior to st- studying theology. How, how did that transition occur? Well, firstly, thank you for having me on your show. Um, so the story of my transition from chemical engineering to Islamic studies is pretty straightforward, nothing spectacular there. Uh, I studied chemical engineering in the early 90s at the University of Houston, and I worked at uh, Dow Chemical uh, Corporation in Freeport, Texas, where I was asked to write uh, a very intensive code. Uh, I wrote it in um, Fortran, if you know your computer languages back in the day. And I, uh, the, the program was meant to simulate computer reactions, uh, sorry, chemical reactions of polymers in the lab. So you input various polymers and you get the polymer uh, output, the projected output. And the goal was to minimize actual lab time by simulating it, you know, in the programs. And then whatever made sense, what they would do it in the lab. So I did that. I wrote a very good program. And my boss was like, yeah, you're great. You know, basically, you're going to get hired when you graduate. This was a co-op. And um, it was at that stage where I realized that life, uh, the way I phrase it, life uh, meant something higher for me than solving nth degree quadratic equations like... I really felt that I wanted to do something more with my life than sit behind a desk and, um, you know, simulate computer reactions or work in the field. Or Money was good, but uh, spiritually speaking, I really didn't feel uh, satisfaction. So I did have a religious epiphany. I did have a spiritual uh, awakening. Definitely not a crisis. That's too harsh of a term. It was awakening. I wanted to do more with my life. And um, I decided uh, back in the day, this was pre-9-11, it was a very different world, very different world. In the 1994 was when I applied to the University of Medina, uh, which was an, unho- was an unheard of university back then. People didn't really know about it. Uh, the reason I knew about it 
was because I was already involved with the fledgling Salafi movement of America at the time. And I had studied with some of its primary, um, you know, uh, um, theologians and preachers. And it really attracted me above and beyond any other methodology that I had um, been inter interacting with. Uh, primarily because of its academic rigor. Because it forced you to go read the text directly. There was always this emphasis on, don't just accept blindly. Do your research. Find out. You know, go back to the books. You know, go reference what you're saying. And I really, especially coming from an engineering background, it really appealed to me. And so I got caught up in the Salafi movement of the early 90s. And I realized that, you know what, I want to go study Islam. And of course, the most prestigious Salafi university in the world is the University of Medina. And so I didn't even apply to Azhar. I didn't even apply to any of the other universities. I didn't want to go there. <laughs> it's like I wanted to apply to the creme de la creme in a time where nobody used to apply there. And so I, I physically went to Saudi Arabia in 94 and gave my papers in and, um, you know, got accepted the next year. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So, um, looking on the topic that that you were discussing here in your in your presentation today, for those who may not have an understanding of Salafism, where and when did did the Salafi movement originate? Just to get some people context. So, <clears throat> Salafis themselves view their understanding of Islam as being the orthodox interpretation from the beginning you know of uh, of the beginning of islam so they don't view the uh, the notion of salafism having been discovered or invented there's no founding figure that they have and they pride themselves that there is no one figure that can be pointed to as being the founder of islam for salafis it is the orthodox interpretation going back to the original time frame islam that how it was understood by uh, so, so the term Salafi means the early ancestor, the pious predecessors. That's what Salafi means. Mm -hmm. So they go back to the earliest pious uh, predecessors, so the companions of the Prophet and those who came right after them. So the first three generations. And why three? It's because it's mentioned in a tradition of the Prophet, specifically that the best generations are my generation and then the one after them and the, and the one after them. So three are mentioned. So Salafis take those three generations as being the, 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 the benchmark right, of understanding Islam. We should understand Islam the way they understood it. They say we need to go back to their understanding, and we need to see, um, you know, how pure it was back in those days. So Salafism, the way I've, I've defined it, is that it is a strand of Sunni Islam. It is definitely Sunni uh, that originated in a very classical uh, period of Islam uh, that prided itself in in tr studying the traditions of the Prophet. So Salafis are very much into Hadith or the sayings of the Prophet, and they consider Quran and Hadith to be equally applicable. The authentic hadith and the Quran to them are equally uh, applicable sources. They're both divinely inspired. And so out of all of the Sunni trends, they are the most pro-hadith, if you like. They're the ones that that, that um, read the hadith of the Prophet the most and consider that to be uh, a very, very direct source of law. So much so that some Salafis will even bypass the schools of law. Some Salafis will even jump over the classical schools and say, well, those schools came after you know, the hadith, and so they're going to go quote-unquote straight back to the earliest of sources but simplistically the one thing that separates Salafism theologically from all other strands is its unique understanding of God's nature and God's divine attributes which for Salafis is a very big deal uh, how do you understand the nature of God and the attributes of God because Salafis are generally speaking literalists they follow the Quran and the traditions literally they say that all of the attributes of God are to be affirmed as mentioned in the sources without 
denying their realities without distorting them from the original meanings uh, and simply affirming them in a modality that God alone knows. We don't think about how, we simply affirm. No other group of Islam does that. Every other group, whether they're the Sufis or the Asharites or the Maturidis or the Mu'tazilites or the Ibadis or the Zaydis or the Twelve Shiites or the Seven Shiites, they can go on and on. Every single group has a different understanding. The only group that actually does that is uh, Salafi. That's really what separates them apart. Of course, there are other incidental things, but that's the main thing. So in your talk, you mentioned that there's been a Western desire or uh, affinity for characterization. Um, and one of these characterizations, I believe the name was Viktorovich. Uh, Viktorovich. Viktorovich. Quentin Viktorovich. Um, who came up with a characterization, a three-step characterization of purist, political, and, and jihadists. But I think one of the things that came out of this was a revisiting on this idea of quietism or the quietists. Now, maybe this is my naivete, but are all Salafist quietists? So, uh, Wiktorowicz in 2005 released a paper, uh, which was the first time, I think, where there was an academic attempt to survey the various strands of Salafism. Like every strand, uh, Salafis are not united. There's differences between them. And what Wiktorowicz highlighted in his article is that uh, Salafis can be divided, according to him, into three. Now, I critiqued that tripartite division in my talk, said it was overly simplistic, but mm-hmm. he uh, divided them into three, and he called uh, them to basically be uh, purists and politicos and jihadists. And for him, purists were, he did call them, consider them to be the mainstream in the bulk, and these were, generally speaking, apolitical. Um, uh, what the criticism, though, of that was... Uh, and this has been uh, critiqued by other academics, including Yoas uh, uh, Wagmaker and uh, myself as well, we've critiqued Wiktorowicz in this regard, that he seems to lump um, disparate groups into the term purists, and they are not the same. So you have those that are genuinely apolitical. They don't want to get involved in politics. And then you have those who use politics as a means to support the ruler. And then you have those who believe that supporting the ruler is a theological, uh, basically, part of Islam, that it is a part of Islam to be supporting of the ruler. All of these have different visions and ideologies and understandings, and it is incorrect to simply uh, put them into one box and say they're all purists. I mean, I think what struck me the most is how does one categorize an individual connection with God in, in, in a way? Um, so one of the things you mentioned was that having an open-ended spectrum of typology would be more in line with what really is... Exactly. Likely, yeah. So what, what I critiqued about not only Victorious but also Wagmaker and all of them really is that they're approaching... Salafism from their own lens and using their own uh, eyeglasses to look at them. And uh, what happens is that the observer picks and chooses what the observer finds exotic. So there is an element of, I called it, you know, orientalization of Edward Said here. There's an element of, of the observer betraying his own biases when he chooses to demarcate certain things to the you know exclusion of others the very fact that you make a choice and you find this thing to be worthy of categorization versus the other it actually shows just as much about you as it does about your categorizing and so the problem that i had is that Wiktorowicz and wagmaker and all of them they're looking at salafis essentially in a post 9-11 world where what bothers them and concerns them is politics and jihad and the fact of the matter is that that's not generally speaking um you know how some salafis would be viewing 
what's the most important concern to them. So what I said was that we need a multi-variable, uh, uh, open-ended categorization scheme where we categorize Salafis upon what they themselves consider to be the most important. Different groups of Salafis consider different things to be important. It is true. There's no denying that for some Salafis, politics is the most important aspect. And so they're going to be willing to compromise the purity of theology, as we talked about in my lecture, in the talk I gave today, where we have some Salafis have no problems working with some Sufis and some you know, Muslim Brotherhood, and they're different strands of Islam, but they're working together for the common good. So they're not as concerned about theology and affirming God's attributes, right? Whereas... Other Salafis would say, no, if you don't agree with my theology, that makes you an innovative person. My being with you is a tacit support. Being with you in, ter in terms of not just interacting, but yeah. being with you in the same organization. Yeah. You know, it means like we're on the same wavelength and we're not. So my point was that we need to put ourselves in the shoes of each and every strand of Salafis and prioritize what they prioritize rather than putting our external boxes onto them. Do you think it's possible for Western scholars to even study uh, Salafism being from a Western concept of, again, labeling everything, putting into boxes? Do you think it's possible? It's always possible. The question is, how accurate will they be? So I understand I'm coming from a very, very unique perspective, having not only studied at the University of Medina, having interacted with almost all of the figures that I've mentioned on my slide, which is a very, I don't think any other researcher would have directly interacted. Some of them I consider my mentors and teachers and others I have interacted with formally and informally and very few I have not interacted with, but definitely having been through the, the system and at one point in my life having been an ardent Salafi and being the face of Salafism in the Western world for a few years at some point in my life, the perspective I'm coming with is a very, very unique one. And I don't know if it would be possible for an outsider to really get the nuances that I inherently know simply because of having been through the system. I don't know if that's possible. However, I will be fair and honest and say that reading uh, these academic um, articles and journals, they were something that even even as I disagreed with, they helped me in my method of categorization. So I benefited from their ideas, even as I strongly disagreed. So I think what that shows is that there is room for cooperation. There is room for, for people to benefit from each other. The very fact that they're outsiders might potentially give them a perspective that, that I can't have because I was never an outsider. Yeah. So there is room for both, I think. So one thing I kind of wanted to talk about and maybe get your take on is the changes that have been occurring within Salafism, moving from something that was perhaps more non-political to something political. Um, is that something that has been only recently after the Arab Spring or, or has it even in, uh, increased since that time to now? So what, 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 one of the most interesting developments in Salafism and this especially is demonstrated probably more than any other country in Egypt, is the radical change that took place post-Arab Spring. And that was one of the main focuses of my um, talk uh, today, where I mentioned that pre-Arab Spring, 
mainstream Egyptian Salafism was essentially apolitical and quietist. And in fact, they opposed the Egyptian Spring, the Arab Spring, and they gave religious verdicts at the very beginning that they should not participate in the demonstrations against Mubarak um, because they believed that not only is obedience to the ruler obligatory, they also believed that politics was corruptive to the soul, the purity of the soul. We saw within the span of a few weeks an entire 180 degree shift, an entire paradigm shift where these quietist Salafis became active in forming political parties and became uh, active in, in uh, voting in the parliamentary elections to the point that in 2011, Salafi parties, after having been apolitical, ended up winning 25% of the vote. And that is something that astonished even the most uh, erudite observer and academic specialist of the field. Nobody could have predicted that Salafis would have taken one-fourth of the popular vote. That's a massive amount from having been almost an obscure, unheard of you know, trend 30 years ago, back in the 70s, let's say, to now taking one-fourth of the vote. And the fact that they mobilized so quickly gave Salafis the incentive, well, maybe if we actually mobilize better, because this was literally a matter of a few weeks from zero to one-fourth of the vote, literally from considering politics to be haram or, or, not, or not allowed to be involved with, to winning one-fourth of the vote. Then the notion came, well, what if we did a good job? What if we actually campaigned? What if we, what if we? And so this emboldened and empowered them. And essentially, most of the Salafis transformed from being quietist to, to being politically active. And that was something that happened as a direct result of the Arab uh, Spring. And then, of course, after that, it splintered up into even more groups with the Morsi and the Sisi issue happening after that. Do you think that social media and technology played a role in this kind of, not publicization, but this disquieting of the Salafi movements within Egypt and around the Arab world? Social media played a primary role. In fact, the reason why Salafis... Uh, became so popular is because of social media, is because of the satellite channels and networks. It is because in the 90s, a number of prominent satellite uh, channels, including Qanat al-Nas, it's called the, the Qanat al-Nas translates as the channel of the people, uh, was essentially a Salafi channel, which some of the main you know star teachers of Salafi Islam, some of the, I call them the Islamic televangelists, you know, the, the people that are well known in the Muslim world, they were given leeway by the government to set up these channels and basically broadcast 24 hours. It was a purely religious channel, no music on the channel. At some times there was no women allowed on the channel. You couldn't even have a woman presenter unless she was in niqab, for example, or full face veil. So this was like hardcore Salafism and it was allowed to broadcast almost unchecked. And in the vacuum that had been created in Egypt and the disenfranchisement with the mainstream Azhar scholars, because Azhar has been viewed for the longest time as essentially being uh, uh, the, the uh, religious arm of the government. It has lost all credibility, even amongst mainstream Egyptians, as not really being credible anymore. So in, that, in the absence of a credible authority, these scholars came along and they essentially gave a breath of fresh air from the perspective of the Egyptian people. They're offering um, academic uh, you know, talks that the people have never heard before. Salafism really is an academic discipline. There's no denying that. They, the way that they talk about law and theology is a very, very interesting dynamics. And I know this from my own personal experience. It attracts people uh, very easily. So social media played a direct role in the popularization of pacifist Salafism. My point in the lecture was that pacifist Salafism was then converted to activist Salafism in a manner that nobody could have predicted because to go from pacifist to activist requires only a very minor modification. 
right? And that's what these preachers did. Do you think that there's no going back subsequent to that? I mean, it seems like a paradigm shift. I would say there is no going back in the sense that the the effects have been seen, the effects have been demonstrated, and we are now living in a, a world where uh, Salafi teachings and Salafi clerics have become some of the most popular in the world. And even those who don't call themselves Salafi, many of them are influenced by Salafi teachings and theology. Many of them find themselves, even if they don't even consciously realize it, but sympathizing with uh, Salafi trends and what this will do in the future, only God can predict. Because celebrity, as you were talking about in your talk, celebrity is itself both good and can be bad. I mean, how, how do you think it's impacting the, the way the faith is being talked about and spread? So this is a very uh, new phenomenon in Islam, uh, to have global televangelists, to have these figures that uh, have tens of millions of followers on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, this is a new phenomenon. And one tweet or you know one Facebook post has the potential to fire up a controversy or support, you know, a type of, uh, you know, um, rebelling against the ruler, etc., etc. We are now seeing, and I think this isn't just the case in the Muslim world, this is around the world. We are now seeing the potential to unlock a very, very powerful force, whether that force is used for the good or the evil. It's not only relative, depending on which side you sympathize with, it is something that sometimes you cannot even predict. So nobody could have predicted. So the Arab Spring itself is the product of social media. Remember how it started. It, it was, you know, the Tunisian guy that was, you know, set himself on fire in public. And then one thing led to another. And then in Egypt, it was a young lady who I think had been harassed or something. And she basically gave a Facebook post. Like, if you guys really want to stop this, then come to the, you know, come to the, the Maidan or whatever and send you to the time and place. And that thing just went viral. Yeah. You know, a s simple post. So... Literally, it was social media that started the Arab Spring. What then do you think is going to be the role of those who already have that power in terms of the clerics and clergy? We're already seeing bits and pieces of that. Uh, and again, it's one of those times in place. Uh, uh, you know, the Chinese have that saying, may you live in interesting times. I think we are definitely living in those interesting times right now. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, on, on that note, do you feel that when adopting these new modern communication methods, that this modernization could create a challenge for faith practitioners who still want to retain a conservative nature that is in itself more or less in keeping with a pre-modern, pre-technological time. I mean, how, how does how does one retain uh, the conservative ideals and the practices in the everyday life when you have in your pocket a device that's connected or can be connected to every bit of information ever existed. That is one of the problems that all conservative uh, strands are dealing with. And uh, it, it, this issue um, comes to light in a number of different interesting scenarios. Uh, so of them, for example, how conservative can you be when conservatism itself is really impossible to completely, completely uh, surround your life. Let me give you a simple example. Almost all conservative uh, stations and, and media are struggling with the issue of women and music. And the 
question arises for these Muslim strands that say that the hardcore strands say that we're not going to have music, or we're not going to have we're not going to have women on the show, and the response given, well, hold on a sec. If you want to appeal to your average Muslim, you can't be this ultra conservative. You have to quote unquote compromise. You have to have shows of a comedy nature. You have to have drama. You have to have cooking shows. I mean, you can't have a you know uh, excuse me for saying this, but a bearded fat guy. Not to mean anything you know personal there, but you can't have an Arab sheikh. I'm trying to say, you know, what I'm saying yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. like with his with his, with his t- teaching you how to cook. Believe it or not, some satellite channels actually did. Believe it or not, some hardcore channels, right? Yeah. They actually had some sheikhs. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if they're good doing, cooks. I if mean, they're good you know, cooks, it doesn't deny that. But yeah. I mean. They're not experts in the area, but the point yeah. is that you need to open up your horizons. You need to to broaden your horizons. To what level do you compromise in order to gain more people? How strict can you be when strictness itself is is impossible to achieve in the real world? Do you think that idea, that notion, creates an othering? For example, those who are looking to try and be more progressive, be more open but still retain their own identity of faith practice? Do you think it creates rhetorically a kind of a climate where othering could could occur? Well, that's a difficult question. At some level, at some level, almost every group of people has an othering. Think about it. I mean, whether it's nation states, whether it's social political divides, whether it's ideological divides. And look at the current world right now. Look at our country right now. Mm. Every group is othering the other group. I mean, identity politics. I mean, we define ourselves by who we otherize, if you get my point. So at some level, othering is human nature. We define ourselves by having a group that we're disagreeing with. Similarly, in the traditionalist or the Muslim world, and I guess in every traditional or every religious faith community, that takes place by defining yourself in contradistinction to others, right? Oh, those guys do that. We don't do that. Automatically, by othering them, you have affirmed your identity, okay? Those guys follow such a ritual. Those guys believe X, Y, Z. We believe that. So at some level, othering is a part of being human. When it comes to this progressive traditional dynamic, the same thing applies here as well. Oh, those guys allow LGBT. Those guys allow LGBT marriages or the clergy. You know, this is happening in Anglican Christianity. It's happening in Sunni Islam and whatnot. And it's, again, at some level, it's totally understandable. Is that the question you're asking? Yeah, no, I just, uh, because, I mean, you know, in your talk, you you spoke about the rhetoric coming out of some clerics. Mm -hmm that is stoking some of the animosity and the othering that perhaps prior to September 11th just wasn't a part of the dialogue. I mean, I, I see it here in the West, and I, you know, I do. And I even see it in the own Christian communities where you have this almost demonization of folks who, for no reason other than either where they came from or how they speak, are being labeled as the dangerous other. Yeah. But, you know, and it gets much more dangerous when the othering is done in the name of God. Yeah. And that's why I mean, I've been very clear in my own personal um uh sermons and whatnot and uh I've gone through phases in my own life. Uh, definitely not, you know, 20 years old anymore. But I have to be honest, in my 20s, that type of hardcore rhetoric did appeal to me because the world is much more black and white when you're a young man. It's easier to otherize when you're not as educated or as well-versed and religiously speaking, it is very easy to read in your prejudices and biases as the prejudices of God. It's very easy to take this person whom you don't like and then say, God doesn't like that person. It's very, and the problem comes when you do that, 
not only do you speak on behalf of, I mean, how, what gives you the right to speak on behalf of, who are you? But then the second point comes, uh, that the danger comes here, is that if you're an influential person, your followers will take your words and maybe even convert them to actions. And that's why preachers have to be so, so, so careful. Because preachers might instigate hatred, but not violence. But their followers will take that hatred and convert it into violence. And then the preachers can say, oh, well, I didn't tell my follower to punch the other guy. But what's going to happen when you're preaching hatred nonstop? And we see this in politics all the time. You know, not to get political on us, but no, we see this. True. We see this when... One particular person is constantly, you know, uh, intimidating other groups and den denigrating other groups, whatnot. Well, then there's going to be a rise of xenophobia, a rise of Islamophobia, a rise of far right, you know, white, whatever. Right? You know, nationalism is going to happen. It's inevitable. Well, in the religious front, it's going to happen, and sometimes it will be worse because what's going to happen is people think they're doing it in the name of God Himself. I mean, I wish there there was a way I could say, well, what's the easy way to stop that? But you know what? What well, would you, I have? I yeah. have some pieces of advice. First and foremost, every group needs to t keep its own preachers in check, because when preachers of the other group get involved, you're actually it's incendiary. So, we have to be more critical of those within us than we have to be outside of us. So, if you come from a uh, background of Anglican Christianity, if you come from a background of white privilege, if you come from a background of a Sunni cleric, whatever it is, look to your own dirty laundry and baggage before you point out the laundry of others. Because there is a privilege that comes when you critique your own that will not come when you critique the other. That is point number one. Before you point finger that's others, look at what your own group has done and become more interested in your group. Point number two, if you do find something wrong in the other group, it needs to be toned down find people like you in the other group who see that and use their rhetoric, not the rhetoric coming from you. Point number three, if it must be done, then do so at a time and a place and using language that will not make matters worse between the two groups of people. And I'm a pragmatist even as I'm a theologian, which is difficult to maintain. I am a theologian at the end of the day. I, I, my expertise is theology. And what that means, and of course I'm a preacher and a teacher. I'm a, I'm a person who's trained in Islamic studies. And so I, I practice Islam as a religion and I preach Islam as a, as a scholar, as a sheikh. And I'm also an academic you know, professor and I've never had a problem balancing that. I know when I'm speaking about what. But my point here is that as a, 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 a preacher, it becomes very, very important that one understands the role that one plays amongst one's own community. One needs to see the repercussions of one's actions. One needs to see the, the trickling down of the language that's going to take place. And I've seen this in my own uh, rhetoric as well, and hopefully I've improved from the better for the last 20, 25 years uh, from, from, uh, ago. So what we also see is that what we consider to be issues of difference of opinion must be tempered with issues of commonality. One of the problems is that in otherizing the group that we want to otherize, we don't mention what we have in common. And that's a big mistake. So you're asking about how to temper it? One of the ways to temper it is like, for example, if Sunnis and Shiites are having a dialogue and debate, and I've said this in public, look, in the end of the day, personally, I'm a Sunni. So what that automatically means is that my theology is not Shiite. If I'm going to 
talk about Shiite theology and disagree with it, I had better do so using a language, a rhetoric, and also beginning with a commonality to set the stage. Like, well, okay, in the end of the day, you know, we worship the same God. You know, we believe in the same prophet. We face Mecca in the same direction. We lower our heads to the same God five times a day, you know. But then we disagree about, you know, who the first caliph should have been. Now, that is very different than jumping over all the agreements and jumping, hey, they say that the first caliph was a bad guy. See, there's a whole language and rhetoric and the setup has to be there. So there's a lot that can be done. Do not generalize and do not concentrate only on the differences. That's one of the most important things that we need to start off with. Do you think an appreciation or a scope of, of importance on the study of history, especially history in formulating one's faith practice, do you think that's important so, so to, to create an awareness? of? Because I know from my own experience, in my own Christian community, there are folks I've come across who just had no idea that Islam was based on a Judeo-Abrahamic background. There's no doubt that broadening one's horizon, studying history, always uh, is, is something that tempers one's prejudices. It's very difficult to be a bigot and a racist if you're educated. It really is. Generally speaking, it's, you know, people that are bigoted and, and racist and xenophobic, generally speaking, they have not educated themselves about these other issues. They're content in stereotypes and platitudes that they hear from their own and not from the other. So definitely, and in my talk, I stress this as well, the practicing Muslim at the end said, I'm a practicing Muslim, you know, the, the question that we had there, you know, and he asked my advice. And one of the things I said to him is study history, study history as a practicing Muslim, because history is the one thing that truly broadens your horizons no matter what you're studying. It's just something that is interdisciplinary. It makes you appreciate and understand the nuances, the ups and downs, the good and the bad. It makes you understand, contextualize who you are, where you're from. It makes you understand there's never been a utopia. And so every single movement that's calling for a utopia, you're not the first, you're not going to be the last. And it's good to, to aim for one, but in all likelihood, it's never going to happen. So be a little bit more mature and wise when you sign on to some movement, like the, the guy was asking about the movement, when you sign on to some group of people, you're not going to be the first and the last. And even the French Revolution, you know, the, the hour of civil war over here and our revolution over here, one of the bloodiest that we've had in this country, it had a lot of negatives as well. And it's important to know those negatives. It's important to not get deluded in the rhetoric of this grandiose, you know, utopia that's going to be established because... People who do things in the name of God are generally some of the most pious and some of the most terrifying, depending on what they're doing. You get some of the best of the best, and you get some of the worst of the worst. And if both sides studied history, I think it would be much better for all of us. That's that's both wonderful and, and almost kind of humanizingly heart-wrenching to, to, to feel that way, since... I think a lot of people look up to scholars, but also in a greater detail to faith leaders. So, you know, we here at the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding, our mission is to create dialogue, to foster understanding. For those who live in communities, for example, where there isn't a mosque, where there isn't a center for Abrahamic or Muslim Christian dialogue, how do those folks, you know, the folks who may be Islamophobic due to what they've heard and seen in the news and from family and friends, what, what can we say to those folks to arm themselves so that they can dispel this kind of animosity? Well, I don't think there's any small town in America that doesn't have a mosque, unless it's a really, really small town. I think every 
definitely every you know small city, definitely every large town would have some mosque. So just Google, find out. But secondly, even those that, uh, for whatever reason, they're not able to go or there is none in their community. So get your information from those who practice it. Go to the source. As we say in English, go to the horse's mouth. Listen to the people themselves talk about their lives and their beliefs and their theology. Don't be content to take stereotypes. I mean, the example that I I give when I... So I go speak at churches and synagogues all the time as a, as a, as a sheikh, as a religious cleric, and I'm invited, and I live in Tennessee, remember, so I go to churches and synagogues all the time. And so the way that I, I, I began my talk is I ask my audience, you all know the Jerry Springer show, like, yeah, of course we know the Jerry Springer show. It's like, okay, imagine somebody in the Middle East who's never been to America and who watches the Jerry Springer show every single day for years and years and years. And the image that he forms of America is just from the Jerry Springer show. Just imagine that person now coming to America expecting, actually he'll never want to come to America in the first place if that's his image of Islam. My point to you then, I say in the audience, is that in my estimation, many Americans are essentially getting their version of Middle East and Islam from the equivalence of the Jerry Springer show. You have to break free of those stereotypes and those negatives. And you need to meet a practicing, living, breathing Muslim, ideally. If for some reason you can't, well then, YouTube and Google and whatnot has made the world into a small village and listen directly from preachers within the Muslim faith. Listen to Muslims themselves and see what they're doing. Or, or in any case, whatever, if it's Muslims, if it's immigrants, if it's Mexicans, whatever group that you've been taught is the evil, whatever group you've been otherized, find out from them directly. And chances are you'll find out much more in common between you and that group than what is not in common. And even what is not in common, generally speaking, it makes life more enriching and interesting rather than dull and boring and bland. I mean, frankly, the world would be a very, very dull place if there was one culture, one language, one cuisine. I mean, heck, man, we need spices. I mean, Columbus went to discover spices, right? That's the whole point. We don't want the world to be a monocultural experience. Why? So rather than look at it in a negative way, it makes life interesting. It makes life enriching. It makes friendly conversations. And the world is a beautiful place if you make it into a beautiful place. And you can you have the potential to turn into an evil place as well with all of these other risings going on. So another thing I wanted to talk about is the Islamic Seminary of America. Now you're the dean of this of this institution. Could you give a little background about how it got started, what what what's going on, how people can find out about it? Excellent. So the American Muslim community is a relatively recent one in the sense that it's only been in the last decade where our numbers have got to the millions. Obviously, Islam has been in America for 400 years. Many of the slaves were Muslims. That's something that most you know people who study history know. But the quantity and the impact that Islam has had uh, has reached unprecedented levels basically in our generation. We're now in the uh, millions, maybe going to touch 10 million uh, you know, in a few years. So that's not a nice, significant, you know, chunk now to get something. However, up until this uh, stage, we've still had to import our scholarship from overseas. We either had to literally get somebody born and raised in another culture and bring those scholars over, or in my case, which is the exception, but becoming more of the norm, we're born and raised in America, and then we go study abroad, then we come back. The goal of the Islamic Seminary, which has been one of my, my goals for the last 20 years, is to really... Uh, stop the need for importing our scholarship. The 
religion of Islam will only truly, truly flourish in this land when American Muslims themselves take charge of their leadership, when American institutes trained by American imams and scholars graduate American sheikhs on American soil. That's really what needs to happen. And we know this because every other faith tradition has done the same. You know, our uh, Jewish uh, brethren, our cousins in the Jewish tradition, they did this 150 years ago, where they used to have to import rabbis, you know, from Poland, from other places. But, you know, in the 1800s, they decided, you know what, we need to open up, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the seminaries here in America. And so they opened up the you know, Jewish uh, Theological Union, they opened up the rabbinical schools, and they started training their rabbis here in America. Now, we, are, we weren't you know, in the millions back in the 1800s, but now we are. And so we have the potential to finally you know, uh, change the dynamics of, of Islamic scholarship, and that's what the Islamic Seminary of America is aiming to do. This isn't the first attempt. However, previous attempts haven't really been successful for reasons that we have studied, because we don't want to go down there, that route. And one of the things that we're doing in the Islamic Seminary is that we are combining the training of traditional Islam with the academic rigor that we expect at any mainstream institution. All of our teachers, uh, without exception, have PhDs in, 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 you know, from accredited Western universities, most of them, like myself, have also trained in the East as well. And that's really what we're trying to do to get that combination of East-West. And the Islamic Seminary is an exciting project. It is launching, it's already launched, and this first uh, batch of students uh, will be uh, taught in this upcoming fall of 2019. So we're, we've just launched our applications. Students have already begun to apply. And of course, we understand there's going to be some hurdles. That's understood. It's a beginning project. It's a fledgling project. But we're optimistic that this is a game changer, and we will be the first Islamic seminary with an accredited uh, master's degree uh, in this country. Did you ever see that happening like 10 or 12 years ago for yourself? Me personally, it has been on my vision for the last 10, 15 years. Yes, that has been something that I have been aiming to do in my personal life. So in my particular case, yes, I'm happy it's, it's finally happening. Uh, but it was not something that I could have dreamed of growing up as a teenager. No, back in the 80s and 90s, I could never have thought of this. But to now be spearheading this and to be the dean of it, it is a very humbling and exciting and intimidating experience. And obviously, as a religious person, I do pray that God blesses me in this endeavor. And uh, I hope that it is a success and a game changer. We really, really want uh, the Muslims of America to to understand their faith from within our context. And one of the things that happens when you go overseas is you import their context and you import their issues and you import their baggage. And we don't want that. We have enough baggage in this country to deal with. We have enough issues that are local and we have enough, you know, so we're more than content and happy to, to, to keep with our own issues here and make sure that we, we bring forth a new generation of scholars, of activists, of sheikhs, of clerics, born and raised in America, trained in America, taught in America, to then lead the Muslims of America forward to the next generation. So for those that want to apply, maybe if not for this upcoming semester, but the next, what's um, where, what's the best way to do so? Uh, so the website is Islamic Seminary of America. Uh, you can just log on to the Islamic Seminary of America, just Google it, and you'll find our website. There's only one, the Islamic Seminary of America. Uh, and it's... Uh, the, uh, the accreditation process, I have to be uh, very honest here, the way that accreditation works is that you have to graduate a few batches of students. It's not immediate. So we're already registered with the accreditation bodies. 
Uh, so the first few batches will not themselves be accredited, but obviously once it is accredited, then the degree will be accredited. So that's how with any accreditation, any new institute of higher learning in America, it can never be accredited from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has to basically pass all the tests and you know, do all the paperwork. So the, the point is that once the person does graduate with the master's degree, and then the institute is accredited, so then the accreditation is then going to be back and forth, if you get my point. Yeah, well, I mean, still, what an exciting, very exciting, very exciting a development, and we wish you the best of luck. And Thank and you very much. All, all the scholars and, and teachers and faith leaders involved in, in that program. And again, we want to thank you so much for being on Building Thank Bridges, you for having me. And uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Building Bridges, brought to you by ACMCU. Follow us on Twitter, at ACMCU, and like our Facebook page, at acmcu.georgetown. Feel free to submit any questions and tune in for upcoming episodes.